grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text is today's Gospel. I'll read again verse 15. Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the reign of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Heavenly Father, bless your word among us that calls us to repentance and trust in your good news. Amen. Dear sisters and brothers in Christ, after John the Baptizer was arrested, it was the right time for Jesus to begin his public work despite the risk. For in going to Galilee, our Lord wasn't going to acquire backwater out of Herod's reach. Galilee was the territory of the same Herod who'd arrested John. It was also a busy, bustling, cosmopolitan place. Its population was made up of Syrians, Jews, Romans and Parthians. A variety of languages would have been spoken in the marketplace. It was a fitting setting for our Lord to proclaim the good news of God. As he proclaimed that the reign of God was at hand... Our Lord also called people to come under that reign. His message has two parts, repent and believe in the gospel. As our defense of the Augsburg Confession says, with the word repent, Christ convicts of sins. With the words believe in the gospel, he comforts us and shows the forgiveness of sins. Repentance means to do a turnaround in one's life, to get a new mind, to have a change of heart. We need to repent because the things of this present world that by nature we trust in can't rescue us from our sins. They confirm us rather in them. Failure to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and failure to love our neighbour as ourselves expose us to God's fierce anger. Modern-day disregard for the truth about Jesus brings us under God's judgment. Disobedience towards rightful authority, devaluing of human life, rejection of God's plan for marriage, disloyalty towards one's spouse are like acts of treason against God who has given what is good. Love of poisonous gossip the desire for more and more things at the expense of other people and of God's good creation bring his displeasure. Whatever it is that makes us captive to our sinful nature, the devil and the world, we need to repent of. In contrast, the reign of God brings righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It brings those who are dead in sin to life with God, God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, brings us under his loving reign. He raises us up with Christ and seats us with him in the heavenly places. People who heard Jesus preach but didn't yet know that he'd come to bear our sins and die on a cross as our ransom for sin from sin might have known from a prophet like Isaiah that the reign of God is something wonderful. At the beginning of Isaiah, after the Lord rails against Jerusalem, calling her Sodom and Gomorrah, and declaring that those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, he says, Zion shall be redeemed by God's justice, 
and those in her who repent by God's righteousness. The prophet Isaiah goes on to tell what he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, Mount Zion that is, shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and all the nations shall flow to it. For out of Zion shall go instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This amazing vision is described in greater detail later in the book. For example, we're told about the eyes of the blind being opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, things which happened only when our Lord Jesus came into this world. And the ransomed of the Lord singing as they make their way to Zion on a highway, the way of holiness. They receive everlasting joy and gladness. Not to be overlooked are those passages that tell about the faithful servant of the Lord. And chief among them is the somber description of the servant of the Lord who was despised and rejected by people, was pierced because of our transgressions and crushed because of our iniquities. Yet precisely because he poured out his soul to death and let himself be numbered with transgressors, the Lord gives him victory. Immediately after this crucial chapter, the childless woman is called on to sing. She's promised children in abundance who will be taught by the Lord and will enjoy great peace. The Lord promises foreigners who love his name, and likewise eunuchs, males who had been made sterile and were denied entry into the house of the Lord because of it. He promises them that he would bring them to his holy mountain and make them joyful in his house of prayer. He says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. There are further, further lavish descriptions of Jerusalem's joy and of the new heavens and new earth that the Lord will create. Near the end of Isaiah's vision, the Lord declares for a second time, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. In the book of Revelation, the Holy Spirit embellishes these promises according to what's been revealed in the New Testament. Jerusalem, God's redeemed people, is pictured as a fabulously adorned city, the same shape as the most holy place in the temple. City and temple are one, because God dwells among his people and is their source of life and light. The water of life, symbol of the Holy Spirit, who in the prophet Ezekiel is pictured as flowing from the temple, is shown in the revelation given to John as flowing from the throne of God, the Father, and the Lamb, Jesus. On either side of the river is the tree of life that forever bears fruit, it's a picture of God dwelling among his people in paradise restored. As we look forward to the fulfillment of these promises, we need to repent and turn away from all that separates us from God and his goodness. We need to trust that Jesus is reigning now at the Father's right hand and that he's working all things together for the good of those who love him. We need to believe that in the Father's good time, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. 
while he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, when he comes on that day, he will be glorified in his saints and be marveled at among all who have believed. But the repentance and faith that we need aren't our work that earns us God's favour. They're God's work through his powerful, spirit-filled word. By that powerful word, the Lord called the two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew, James and John, to follow him. And if you wonder how it is that they could just up and leave everything, well, as we heard last Sunday, they'd been with John at the River Jordan, John the Baptizer. They'd heard him speak about Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Andrew had gone to be with Jesus for a whole day, and then he found his brother, Simon, and said, we found the Messiah. Well, the Lord wasn't calling men who were dirt poor. Simon and Andrew owned a house in Capernaum. Zebedee, the father of James and John, had hired servants working for him. The family had good prospects for a comfortable future for James and John. Yet when the Lord called these men, immediately they left their nets, Zebedee and the hired servants, and followed him. These four were called, as another eight would be soon afterwards, to be part of Jesus' mobile seminary, as it were. He appointed the twelve to be his apostles. Day after day they would hear his teaching and witness his miracles. He would give them authority to preach like him, cast out demons, and to anoint many who are sick and heal them. After his resurrection, the Lord commanded them to carry on his work of preaching the good news to the whole creation. While those whom Jesus called had much to leave behind, the Lord didn't break up their families. A few verses later, St. Mark tells about the Lord going to the home of Simon's mother-in-law to heal her of a raging fever. Although no mention is made there of Simon's wife, She's referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. There St. Paul writes, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? And Cephas, which means rock, is the Aramaic equivalent of the name Peter, the name the Lord would give Simon. As Simon followed Jesus, there may have been lengthy periods of time when he didn't see his wife, it was only 70 or so years ago that anyone from the LCA who wanted to, any pastor who wanted further studies overseas would have to leave his wife behind for something like two years. But they didn't have to give their wives up, nor did Simon, to follow Jesus. This is in keeping with what St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Though Paul was single, at least during his time as an apostle, he didn't devalue marriage. That he was single made it easier for him to go on long missionary journeys, just as not so many years ago, pastors of the LCA who were single were sent to Thailand and Papua New Guinea. But St. Paul also upheld the goodness and the importance of marriage as established by God in the beginning. The words of today's second reading, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, are a reminder that the form of this present world is passing away. They highlight that we're not to become so taken up with the things of this world that we lose sight of God's reign and our eternal destiny. 
As Jesus says, seek first the kingdom or the reign of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Through Jesus' call to repentance and the good news of the kingdom or reign of God, the Lord continues to turn people to himself. A notable recent example is that of Somalian-born Ayan Hirsi Ali. In her teenage years, Ayan had become fired up by the Muslim Brotherhood. She donned a burqa and would no longer read novels, listen to music or go to the movies. Later, her enthusiasm for Islam, Islam waned and after the destruction of New York's Twin Towers, she became critical of Islam for its notion of warfare against infidels. Influenced by atheist thinkers from the West, and thinking she'd find freedom, she declared herself an atheist. But over the years, so that's from around 2002 until November last year, she found that atheism couldn't fill the void that resulted in her life and in society. Atheism, she wrote, provides no answer to the question of the meaning and purpose of life. She came to understand that all kinds of supposedly secular freedoms have their roots in Christianity. She also came to believe that Christ has compassion for sinners. She recognises that she still has much to learn about Christianity. I discover a little more at church each Sunday, she wrote last November in her essay, Why I Am Now a Christian. While our Lord doesn't call everyone to carry on the work of his apostles by preaching his word, baptising and shepherding his flock, he does call everyone to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. That is, he calls us all to repent and believe the good news of God's reign. He also leads his baptised people to take part in the feast of his reign, his supper in which he feeds us with his body given into death for us, and his blood of the covenant shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Risen from the dead and ruling over all things, he is yet with all who follow him, even us, to sustain us with his life. And when at the last day he's revealed in his glory, the glory that he's already given you will be revealed as well. Your inheritance that's now kept in heaven for you your place in the new heavens and new earth that God has promised you will be revealed to the praise of his glorious grace. Jesus' ministry, death, resurrection and ascension to heaven guarantee it. Amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. <laughs>